Well, good morning again. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this Memorial Day weekend, we pray for those who courageously lay down their lives for the cause of freedom. May the examples of their sacrifice inspire in us the selfless love of your son, Jesus. I ask that you bless the families of our fallen troops and fill their homes and their lives with your strength and peace. I ask that you embolden us to answer the call to work for peace and for that which is true and right. As our nation pauses to remember those in the military who have given their lives for the freedoms we enjoy, we ask your blessings on all who serve in our armed forces. Please guard and protect their families. We ask for your mercy to rest on our land, even as we acknowledge today, Lord, with thanksgiving, your unfathomable goodness to us. Most of all, we pray that you would turn the hearts of everyone, both military and civilian, to your holy word, where we find the true peace for our souls that passes all understanding. May we treasure you, for you are our hope for eternity. And Father, today I also want to remember some of the needs in our church. Specifically, I want to pray for Linda Rice's family this morning and her nephew Chris, as he's had multiple surgeries over the last couple days. I pray that you would strengthen his body and help the doctors and other medical personnel as they minister to him. I pray that you'd bring comfort to the family and bring healing to Chris today. And I ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I count getting to open God's word with you today an amazing privilege, and I'm thankful for the opportunity that Pastor Mike has given me to be able to share today while he and his family enjoy some much-deserved time away. We've got a wonderful text in front of us today, a text that helps us know how to respond to difficulties in life, and we all have difficulties in life from time to time. And I know that some, even who are hearing this this morning, are facing some very difficult things. Hardships like cancer, or other medical issues. Hardships like divorce, strained relationships, lost jobs, addictions, enormous financial burdens, and the list goes on. And no matter who you are today, from the oldest believer to even a non-Christian, all of us will face harsh circumstances because we live in a broken world. But in the passage that we're gonna look at today, Paul directs us to what our response to hardship could and should be. So if you want to go ahead and get your Bibles out, um, you can be looking at Philippians chapter 1. We'll get there in just a moment. Philippians chapter 1, we'll start at verse 3. And as you're looking at that, as you're turning to that, many of you are familiar probably with the name Jim Elliott, a young graduate of Wheaton College in the late 1940s who was passionate about Christ and committed to seeing the Alcas, a violent South, African, South American tribe, come to know Christ. Elliot felt called to go down and engage this tribe, along with some other friends, knowing that this group, this particular tribe, was dangerous. This group actually took a gun with them. And Jim Elliot was asked once if the people became violent, if he would use his gun. And this is what he said. He said, I will not. I am ready to meet my maker, but these people are not ready to meet theirs. And as history shows, the tribe did become violent, and Jim Elliott and his friends lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. But what was most important to them? Was it their safety and their comfort? Obviously not. What was most important to them was the advancement of the gospel of Christ, even in the face of opposition and difficult circumstances. And we see the same thing in Paul here in this text. 
His great concern is the advancement of the gospel in the face of great hostility and horrible circumstances. So if you have your Bibles, if you'd read with me, Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Paul writes, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ Jesus' return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Christ Jesus. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. And I want you to know my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Imagine this scene. Try to put yourself in the shoes of our brothers and sisters in Philippi. The man who led your church has now been arrested and will face Caesar. No doubt, they're shocked. They're scared. They're, sh they're shaken because Paul is their champion. It'd be sort of like if Pastor Mike got arrested while we were in Costa Rica last summer sharing the gospel. And we hadn't heard from him. And we were unsure about what's going on. And we might be shaken or scared about what's going to happen. And then in our inbox an email appears with Pastor Mike's name on it. That's sort of what's going on here in this letter from Paul. And I imagine if that happened to us, we'd be eager to click on that email and see what it said. And Paul lets the people of the church in Philippi know, says, yes, I understand that you're scared. I understand you're concerned. But Paul says you should not be worried because Christ is still king and what is happening to Paul is making the gospel known. When we determine that the advancement of the gospel is our highest calling in life, we then learn to see the circumstances of our lives, the opposition in our lives through the lens of that calling. That's what Paul is doing here. There was no greater purpose in life to Paul than to share the good news of Christ. And even while under arrest, he was able to see his circumstances as being an opportunity for God to be glorified. If you're following along with the outline this morning, this is point number one, Paul's confidence. In verse 12, we see his confidence demonstrated. Despite the difficult circumstances that Paul was undergoing, he remained confident, confident in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His circumstances could not have been any more difficult, but his confidence could not have been any greater. The outlook was awful, but Paul's uplook was great. It's all about perspective. There's an old saying that goes, two men looked out from prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. 
when we look out through the lens of our circumstances, we are, are we looking upward through our confidence in the power of God at work in our lives? Or are we like the man in prison who was looking downward and saw mud instead of stars? Do we see difficulties as an opportunity for God to spread the gospel through us? Or do we see difficulties as an opportunity to complain and to doubt God? Notice how Paul begins in verse 12. He says, now I want you to know my dear brothers and sisters. He is setting this up and he's getting their attention. He's saying, I really need you to get this. I need you to understand what I'm about to tell you. And he speaks to them with tender affection. He identifies them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this is what he says. Everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news of the gospel. When he says everything that has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment. He goes on to talk about that more in verses 13 and 14. And there's no denial on Paul's part here about his imprisonment. And as he looks at it, these circumstances are dire. They're dreadful. They're desperate. And yet, from the eternal perspective, he says, everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news. From Paul's perspective, the most important thing in his life is the advancement of the gospel. It is not his own personal safety. It's not his own personal creature comforts. What is most important in Paul's life is for the gospel to progress and move forward. So Paul says to his family, to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, this that has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And now Paul wants to put his circumstances in perspective for his brothers and sisters. And what he's saying to them is really contrary to what they might think. They might thinking this is incredibly bad, but he's saying things are not as they seem. Paul's saying what I am suffering hasn't harmed the gospel, nor should it shake you, but it is actually working to make the gospel known. No matter how bad things have been for me, and they've been bad, they are actually serving to advance the gospel. So rejoice, rejoice that the kingdom is marching on and marching forward. Paul says this to encourage the Philippians because they too will face suffering. And his joy and his mission is to focus on the gospel in spite of horrible things going on around him. And he's encouraging them and encouraging us likewise in all circumstances, yes, even horrible ones, to rejoice in the advancement of the gospel. This is Paul's confidence. This must be our confidence as well. That we truly believe that every difficulty we face, every setback, every opposition cannot thwart the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that God will use it to further the cause of his kingdom in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. It's a matter of perspective. When we face difficulties, even some very hard ones, are we placing our confidence in Christ to use those difficulties to help us share the good news about who he is with others. So point number one is Paul's confidence. Point number two is Paul's confinement. In verse 13, he gives more information about his confinement. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, he says, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. The word for imprisonment that some translations use here comes from a root word that means bonds that are made with chains. In fact, the King James Version actually translates it as chains. This imprisonment was a restriction and confinement in chains. For two solid years, Paul was in chains. 
And the chains that were on him were like an extended handcuff that were about 18 inches long. It was always attached to his wrist. It was never taken off. And the Praetorian Guard would be rotated. And the other end of this chain, the Roman soldiers would attach themselves to this chain. And after their post was over, after their duty shift was over, they would unchain themselves and the next soldier would then be chained in. It was only 18 inches long or so, such that Paul was only always 18 inches away from a Roman soldier for two solid years. It's a remarkable imprisonment to think about. And there were at least, it has been calculated, several dozen of these soldiers who were rotating through, who were connected to Paul in the closest proximity imaginable. And what is amazing is what we read here in verse 13, that Paul did not see himself as a prisoner of Rome, but as a prisoner of Christ. And that is a world of difference. What he is saying is, he said, I am imprisoned by the divine appointment of Christ. And I am imprisoned as an ambassador of Christ. I am here by the sovereign will of God. That's the way that he speaks in Ephesians that he also wrote when he wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, and he referred to himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is really tremendous to note. Paul does not give credit to his confinement and imprisonment to Rome. Paul gives credit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome is simply a secondary instrument, a secondary instrument in the higher sovereignty of God. Paul understands that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ, that he is here in these chains by the will of God. He goes on to say in verse 13 that his imprisonment in, in Christ has become well-known. You bet it's well-known. Paul is the talk of the town. This news is spread far and wide. Even the Philippians over 600 miles away have heard about this. Has become well-known, but specifically, he says, throughout the whole palace guard. Some translations may refer to it as the imperial guard or the praetorian guard. And I want to stop for just a moment and make sure to talk about the Praetorian Guard. These Imperial Guards were like the, the Navy SEALs, the FBI agents and the Secret Service agents all rolled into one. They were the most elite group of Roman soldiers in the empire. They were the personal bodyguards for Caesar and they were based out of Caesar's palace. They served in his palace. They were hand-picked elite Roman soldiers. And this is who is assigned to Paul. I think it speaks volumes of the threat that they perceived in Paul, that they would assign to him not mere Roman soldiers, but the very elite of the elite, who served in Caesar's own palace, in his own household. And they are rotating on duty, guarding Paul 24 hours a day, seven days a week, over the course of two years. The reason Paul has become well-known throughout the whole guard is because they are a captive audience to Paul. As Paul sees it, they are chained to him and they can't get away. And he loves the fact that they are rotating and he has a new congregation each time the guard changes. He has a new audience every shift and Paul is proclaiming Christ to them. Imagine a guard coming on duty for the first time, having no idea about who Paul is, coming up and chaining himself into this man and asking, why are you in chains? I suspect Paul's answer would be crystal clear. He might say something like, I am in chains because I belong to Jesus Christ. I serve Jesus. In humility and obedience, I work according to God's will. I believe Jesus died for our sins on a Roman cross. 
And as the Messiah, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is the exalted Lord above all powers. Christ called me, Paul, to proclaim the good news about him among the nations. Christ is the savior of all who trust him. And one day, everyone will recognize and bow down in worship to Jesus Christ as the Lord of all. All of these elements of Paul's answer are prominently featured in the letter to the Philippians. So the fact is, Paul witnessed to these elite imperial guards and has won many of them to Christ. Paul was confident that his highest calling in life was to share the gospel. And he was so confident in this that he saw his confinement and those responsible for his continual watch as his mission field. Men and women of God who properly understand the call of God in their lives see providential circumstances as opportunities to speak. Even potentially embarrassing situations can bring us a chance to speak up and speak out about our king. Why was this having such an effect among the guards, which likely would have numbered in the dozens and hundreds? Because these guards are rotating in and out, and they're getting to see Paul's commitment to Christ, and they're seeing that his commitment to Christ is what led to his chains. Paul here is showing the surpassing treasure that Christ is to him. Paul wasn't in jail for any great crime or horrible deed that he committed. He simply was committed to this Jewish carpenter, so committed that he was willing to be beaten and jailed for him. Paul is the kind of Christian who can say, you want to see if I really believe this stuff? Take a look at my back. See the wounds and the scars. Take a look at these chains. And everyone who saw them would know that Paul really believes this gospel that he preaches about is enough to suffer for. Paul actually is rejoicing that at great expense to himself, others get to hear the gospel. Even these men who likely would have mocked him, who have spit upon him, humiliated him in the most dehumanizing conditions where he likely couldn't have even gone to the bathroom in privacy. Paul rejoices because these men get to hear the truth of God's word. And this would have been contagious to these palace guards. They don't see a complainer. They don't see a, a man who would have been like another hardened criminal. But instead, day after day, they see this man who is singing and praying and praying for them. And his joy would have shown off the beauty of the gospel. They would have seen a man who spent his time talking about the Jewish king from the eastern parts of the empire, who was crucified, buried, risen from the dead, the true king who would one day judge even Caesar himself. Paul wasn't hindered by his chains. Paul wasn't hindered by his circumstances. He seized them for the glory of Christ, and he preached a sermon. He rejoiced in his circumstances. He rejoiced in those chains. And yet, some Christians today even struggle to tip at a restaurant if they feel wronged. In the midst of all of this, Paul preached a sermon. And we are all preaching a sermon every day with our lives as well. The question is, in the midst of good or bad circumstances, what kind of sermon is your life preaching? Does our life preach a sermon about the glories of Christ? Or does our life preach a false gospel sermon of whining and complaining that makes the people around us question whether we really believe that God is in control 
and working everything out in our lives for his glory and our good. Our lives must preach the sermon that we see our circumstances as opportunities, as part of the bigger picture of God's work in advancing his kingdom through us. And it may just be that another person will get to experience eternal life and a personal relationship with Jesus because we chose to pursue his calling rather than our comfort and to look at our confinements as opportunities to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to yet to those who don't yet know him. What did Paul write to his young protege, Timothy, about six years or so after this letter to the Philippians when he once again was in chains? In 2 Timothy 2, chapter 8 and 9, Paul wrote to Timothy and said this, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Paul's belief that the word of God is not chained drove everything he did. In fact, I want us to take a look at the very end of the book of Philippians. I want us to see this remarkable, seemingly insignificant couple of verses at the end of this letter. It's actually a monumental couple of verses. So flip over to Philippians chapter 4 and look with me at verses 21 and 22. This is one of those, get ready to underline your Bible or get ready to highlight it if you do that in your Bible. Maybe point an arrow in the margin of your Bible if you need to, to connect it back to Philippians 1. This is what Paul writes in Philippians 4, verses 21 and 22. He says, give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you their greetings. And all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. Did you catch it? Especially those in Caesar's household. Through Paul's commitment to the call of God in his life, and even through the circumstances of his confinement, the enemy couldn't keep the gospel out of Caesar's household. If Paul had been preaching out on the street corner and in the marketplace, yes, the gospel would have gone many places, but it likely would not have advanced quite like this. Paul had a pipeline into Caesar's household. These elite bodyguards that are chained to him, when they are released, they go straight back to Caesar's household and they are spreading the gospel. The power of the gospel is exploding like dynamite in Caesar's household. And the more that people try to oppose Paul, the more they are actually propelling the gospel right into the very household of Caesar. We need to realize that often the advancement of the gospel is accompanied with great suffering. And we won't always have the whole picture of what God is doing. We may have just a small glimpse of it. But the question is when suffering hits and when persecution hits, and it will, suffering will hit, persecution will hit, all of our lives, when it does, do we become more or less gospel-oriented? There's one last point I want us to look at, and this is Paul's challenge. We have to go back to verse 14 for this. Notice with me again what Paul says in verse 14. It says, because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Through his example, Paul is challenging those who are already believers to be more bold and more courageous in living for Christ and in telling others about him. Notice what he says, to boldly speak God's message without fear. 
believers now are having more courage, not just simply to live, but to speak, to bear witness, to testify to the word of God. And God's message here refers to the gospel. It refers to the name of Christ. It refers to the way of salvation. It refers to the grace of redemption. It refers to the necessity of repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Because of Paul's boldness, he has edified the believers in Rome. That's quite a shadow to cast. But one man or one woman on fire for God can compel countless others with new courage. It's happened here with the Apostle Paul. It's happened with many others across the span of time. People like Martin Luther. People like even this past week, the giant that we lost in the Christian community, Ravi Zacharias. This is what Ravi's daughter, Sarah, shared about her dad's powerful life, love, and ministry upon his passing this week. She wrote, it was his savior, Jesus Christ, that my dad always wanted most to talk about. Even in his final days, until he lacked the energy and breath to speak, he turned every conversation to Jesus and what the Lord had done. He perpetually marveled that God took a 17-year-old skeptic, defeated in hopelessness and, and unbelief, and called him into a life of glorious hope and belief in the truth of Scripture, a message he would carry across the globe for 48 years. Today, my father is more alive than he has ever been, and Sarah said, we thank God for him and recommit our lives to sharing this truth with all who will hear until he calls us to our eternal home. One man or one woman on fire for God has the ability to put steel into the backbone of believers around them. It speaks of the enormity of the influence that is cast when one person speaks up with courage about the word of God. One of my favorite Billy Graham quotes is this. He said, when a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. Notice Paul says here, without fear. No longer were these believers, these brothers and sisters in Christ, paralyzed by fear, hesitant to mention the name of Christ. No longer were they reluctant to witness. They see Paul and what he is suffering what he's willing to endure because of the sake of the gospel, and it has an enormous impact on them. It pulls them up to serve at Paul's level and to openly testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we had been standing there that day and observing Paul's life, we might have been tempted to say something crazy like, Paul, you've obviously missed God's will for your life. I mean, you're in prison. What good can you possibly be doing for the gospel in these chains? But that, have, well, that would have been the wrong perspective to have. For you see, the providence of God does not run by human intuition or by human wisdom. The providence of God runs by the sovereign purposes of God. The more the world tries to resist the gospel, the more they fan the flames of its fire to spread far and wide. I want to share with you one final story this morning about a man whose courage to share the gospel has greatly influenced my life personally. In 1975, when I was five years old, a pastor by the name of Ken began reaching out to my father, building a relationship with my dad and inviting him to church. My dad was not a believer in Jesus at the time, but Pastor Ken continued to befriend my father 
and to pour into his life and to invite him to church. My father finally agreed to accept one of Pastor Ken's invitations and attended a revival service at Pastor Ken's church. Though Pastor Ken wasn't preaching that night, the Lord used Pastor Ken's investment in my dad's life and the words of the speaker to penetrate my dad's heart with the gospel. And on November 12th, 1975, my father gave his heart to the Lord. That decision led to our family beginning to attend church, which eventually led to me and my brothers all coming to know the Lord as our personal savior as well. My mom was the only one in our family prior to that time who had a personal relationship with the Lord. Pastor Ken continued to disciple my father. And my dad began diving into God's word. He developed a deep hunger for the Bible and an increasing awareness of his responsibility to serve the Lord. In 1976, while reading through the book of Judges and specifically the story of the prophet Gideon, my father began to wrestle with what area of service the Lord was calling him to. Taking a break from his studying, my father went out into our backyard and spent some time in prayer and conversation with the Lord while enjoying one of his favorite pastimes, throwing horseshoes. As he tossed the horseshoes, he reflected on the passage he had just been reading about Gideon. And he began to ask the Lord for a sign as to where he wanted my dad to serve in his kingdom. He didn't know how God would confirm his will. But like Gideon, my dad made a fleece. He asked God to somehow use the horseshoes to lead him in the direction of ministry that he wanted him to have in the church. My dad literally stood there at one end of the horseshoe pit and began asking the Lord a question about where to serve. And then he would throw a horseshoe and see how God would answer. He began with a question like, God, do you want me to sing in the choir? If so, when I throw this horseshoe, give me a sign. And he tossed the horseshoe, and as it went to the air and hit the stake at the other end, nothing happened. My dad has always been a good horseshoe player and often gets ringers when his throw hits the steel post. My dad would then ask another question such as, do you want me to be an usher? and then throw another horseshoe. No sign, nothing remarkable happened. He continued to do this for a while, asking the Lord about different areas of ministry. Lord, do you want me to be a Sunday school teacher? Do you want me to help with visitation? And on and on, asking a question and then throwing a horseshoe, walking back and forth between the two ends of the pit. Finally, after having gone through every area of service in the church that he could think of, my, pa my father paused and said, well, Lord, I think I've about run out of areas where you might want me to serve. All I can think of that is left would be to become a pastor and to learn to preach the gospel. Is that something you want me to do? Do you want me to serve your kingdom as a pastor? And just as he did when asking each of the other questions, my father threw one horseshoe looking for a sign. This time, however, unlike all the other times he tossed the horseshoe after asking a specific question, when the steel horseshoe hit the steel post at the other end of the pit, it immediately broke. You can imagine my father's incredible surprise and speechlessness in that moment. He didn't throw another horseshoe, but took that as a clear indication of God's calling him into the ministry. He went inside and shared the news with my mom and also decided that it'd be wise to share it with his pastor. 
And so he did, and the pastor was very intrigued by the story and suggested that they go and talk to yet another pastor for even more counsel and insight. And this was the counsel that my father received from the second pastor after he told him the story. Pastor said, young man, I'm not sure if I'd make any life-altering decisions based on that experience just yet. For remember, Gideon fleeced twice. So in an effort to affirm the call of God on his life and to take the counsel of the pastors who were pouring into his life, my father returned to the horseshoe pit shortly after that. In a humble manner, he approached the Lord once again. He told the Lord he didn't want to seem doubtful or questioning what God had already shown him through the broken horseshoe. He said he had been reading about how Gideon fleeced twice. And if he may be so bold as to ask the Lord for a confirmation of his desire for my father to go into the ministry, please reveal it to him once again in the horseshoe pit. My father tossed only one more horseshoe that day. Only one. And after he asked the Lord that question and released the steel horseshoe into the air, instantly upon hitting the steel spike at the other end, just like the one before, this horseshoe also broke in two and landed on the ground. There was no doubt in my father's mind, nor in any of ours since that day, that the advancement of the gospel is our highest calling in life. And the Lord has taught us over many years to see our circumstances and oppositions in life through the lens of that calling. And just in case you may be wondering about the reality of those broken horseshoes, I brought with me a little show and tell this morning. After that experience in the backyard that day in the mid-1970s, my dad painted the horseshoes and had them professionally mounted. Hopefully the camera can zoom in on that. You can see right here these two broken golden horseshoes, the very same ones that my dad tossed in the backyard when I was five and six years old that the Lord used as confirmation of his calling into the ministry. Between 1976 and 1980, my father began his training to become a minister of the gospel. And in May of 1981, 39 years ago this very month, my father accepted his first pastorate as a, at a Nazarene church in Tecumseh, Michigan, when I was 10 years old. When he, when he resigned his job as a partner in a lucrative insurance firm in Detroit to go into full-time ministry, his employers, who he had a very good relationship with, called him a fool. They said, if you remain with this company, you will never want for money again for the rest of your life. But my father knew, like the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3.8, that everything is considered loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and making him known to others. And it has been the faithful obedience of my father and my mother and many others who have made a lifelong commitment to the advancement of the gospel in my life that's brought me here to this moment today, to a place where I am gifted and blessed to be a pastor who shares the gospel of God's word with others. As we close, I wanna ask you, who has the Lord used to ignite the fire for the gospel in your life? Why not take some time this week, if possible, if they're still alive, to thank those people who have been most influential in your journey with the Lord. I also wonder whose lives are you pouring into and igniting a growing passion for the advancement of the gospel in others? 
Who has seen the confidence that you are displaying in the power of Christ to redeem souls and bring glory to himself as they watch your life, even as you go through times of crisis? I think Jim Elliott said it well. Even as he lost his life taking the gospel to those natives in Ecuador, he famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Jesus, for the power of the gospel. Thank you that the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that raises those who are spiritually dead to new life even today. Lord, for those times when we feel surrounded by the fire and the flame, help us like Paul to have the right perspective and to see it as an opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus. Should we ever feel abandoned, let us never forget that you are always there with us, giving us the strength to carry your light to others, even through the shadows of our chains. May we agree with the Apostle Paul and be able to say, for me to live is Christ. There is only one name worth remembering, only one name worth proclaiming, and that is Jesus my Jesus, in whose name I ask these things. Amen. The worship team has one more song that we're going to do here before we leave the parking lot.